Well, we are returning to Titus chapter 2, so open your Bibles, and the, uh, the topic for our last sermon, as, as well as this one and a couple more to come, the topic is on countercultural Christianity. We remember that the Apostle Paul addresses this, this collection of churches on the island of Crete relatively early in their, their existence. And they were living in a context that Paul himself uh, describes as, as, as a culture filled with liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It was, a, it was a very sinful culture, and Paul and Titus spent time preaching the gospel there, saw the Lord bring many to saving faith, and to see churches established, Paul then leaves the further establishment of those churches in the hands of Titus as Paul moves on to other ministry and then writes to Titus with some continuing instruction for how Titus would establish that which remained. And part of that establishment that Titus was responsible for was the development of a distinctly Christian culture. Now we can ask the question, what does a Christian culture look like? What does a Christian culture look like? A culture within the church, a culture of the redeemed, those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have experienced the grace of God in their lives. How does that impact their daily living, their habits, their lifestyle, their practices, their values, and and what they prioritize? And that was the challenge for Titus as he continued to strengthen those churches. How do you uh, minister to and, and, and help all of these new converts understand what new life in Christ looks like. But when we think of this question of what a Christian culture looks like, answers to it tend toward three very errant positions on this. On the one hand, you can have the problem of antinomianism, and certainly that is rampant in our day. Antinomian, the antinomian position states that God has not revealed to us practical instructions for how to live our everyday lives. He is, he's saved us, he's given us liberty and forgiveness and grace, but there really isn't any commands. There's no specific will. We are free in Christ. It comes, uh, this kind of thinking often comes from a misunderstanding of John 8.32, when Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. These antinomians will also say that even if God has, in his word, revealed specific instructions, they have limited application. They're not universal, and we can kind of pick and choose and decide which ones will fit our own culture today, but, but ultimately, Christianity is about liberty, and you just need to be released from, from any kind of pressure and authority, live the life that you choose within grace. You could look at the Corinthians, they were of this opinion, at least some of them, and Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 5, he speaks of the immorality that existed in the congregation, and he even says, you, you've become arrogant in this. And he goes on to say in, in verse 6, you're boasting in your liberty of accepting this immorality. Your boasting is not good. Antinomians are of the opinion that we can sin so that grace may increase. Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 6. That's one of the answers to what Christian culture looks like. Another answer is what we could call traditionalism. 
And traditionalism is the approach of prescribing extra man-made laws to what God has already revealed in an, or, in an effort to protect what God has revealed and to ensure true holiness. And so we can look to the Pharisees of Jesus' day as examples of this. Jesus even says in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, he says of the, the Pharisees that they neglected the commandments of God because they held to the tradition of men. Now, the Pharisees would have strongly rejected that that verdict, they thought they were protecting the commandments of God by adding on all these additional layers of tradition. And the Pharisees themselves, that name Pharisee, connotes the idea of, of, of being separated and extra holy. And that's what the Pharisees thought. It's traditionalism, adding the traditions of man. That's another problem when we discuss what Christian culture looks like. There's the tendency to want to add all kinds of man-made ideas about, what, about how Christianity is to be lived out in our particular day. And then there's another one, we could call it legalism. And this is the view that, that, that acknowledges the, the commandments of God as it pertains to Christian living, but pursues obedience to those commandments apart from God's person, apart from God's grace, and apart from God's sovereign activity. It essentially says, yes, God has given us these commands. This is how Christianity is to look, and I, by my own strength, and I'm going to pursue these things, and of course what that leads to is a lot of human boasting and shaming. Sinclair Ferguson defines legalism, this kind of legalism in these words, he says, in essence, legalism is any teaching that dismisses or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of his grace. It then distorts God's graciousness revealed in his law and fails to see that law set within its proper context in redemptive history as an expression of a gracious father. It is pursuing obedience apart from the person, grace, and activity of God. Well, in response to these errant ideas, the Apostle Paul has a a much better and certainly a true expression, and that is so well expressed in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And I want to begin with this because it is important to anchor what we're going to say today and what we said last time in our study of Titus chapter 2 and what we'll say next time as well, that Paul anchors his instruction on, 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 on Christian culture within the grace of God. Notice what he says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In that text, and we're going to get to that in a few weeks, we'll unpack it, but we find Paul's responses to all of these kinds of errant ideas about Christian culture. Indeed, God is clear about how we are to live. He has given us clear instructions 
He's given us the principles by which to cultivate the, the, the walk of a follower of Jesus Christ, but that all comes as a result of the experience of grace, and that also continues along with that experience of grace. And it is God who does this work. It is Christ himself, as Paul says in verse 14, who purifies for himself a people. We'll get to that later, but we need to remember this as we start out in our study again this morning. Well, just by way of quick overview, as we've already noted, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, going all the way to verse 10, Paul provides Titus with what could be called a counter-cultural household code for the new congregations on Crete. He takes the form of something that was common, uh, common in those days, instructions for how members of the household or citizens of a, of, a, of, a, of a country were to live. And Paul takes that, but he, he empties it of the normal traditional understanding and he puts within it sound doctrine. He brings out the, the truth. He brings out God's will for how Christians within the community of faith, within the household of faith, are to relate to one another in, uh, in, each, in each other's eyes, and more importantly, in the eyes of God. And we see in these 10 verses various sections of the, uh, of the, 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 the household of faith addressed. After he gives a, an initial remark in verse 1, we've studied that already, he moves first to deal with the expectations for elderly men in verse 2, then the expectations for elderly women in verse 3. We've looked at both of those expectations last time. And then he moves to the expectations for young women in verses 4 and 5. He'll move on to the expectations for young men in verses 6 to 8, and then the expectation for slaves in verses 9 and 10. And for our focus this morning, we will will look at verses 4 and 5 and see what Paul states regarding God's will for young women. As, as, as young women in Christ, consider what the, the culture should be in the church, how, how they should walk, how they should live their lives, how they should develop a, a, a lifestyle. Paul gives some very, very important principles here, and we'll spend our time this morning looking at them. But to set the stage, let's read the text beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and all the way to the end of verse 5. Paul writes this, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then the text for this morning, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So this is the the fourth section of this particular portion of the letter, Paul's expectations for young women as he instructs Titus about how to develop true Christian culture. And notice this, that Paul's expectations for young women are tied directly to what he has just said about the the older women. He said back in verse 3, right before our section 
this morning, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So that is what he expected from the older women. We covered those virtues last time. Now, Paul could could then wrap that section up with some kind of a statement about the the, the noble outcome of, of such virtue. He could say, for example, like he does in in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, for example, that, that in whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And, and Paul could say, listen, elderly women, if you would live this way, and, and remember that that designation for older women would be from about the age 50 and on, remember, elderly women, that you, could, you, you live this way for the glory of God. And, and that certainly is, is, is consistent with what you know, Paul would teach in the ultimate sense. But in this text, Paul has a different purpose in mind. And that purpose is expressed in verse 4. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 4. As he instructs the older women to live this way, he draws the consequence of it or the purpose of it in verse 4 with these words, so that they may encourage the young women. Now let's look at that for just a few moments and understand what this relationship is to be between elderly women who are living out this kind of virtue and and the younger generation. Paul says, so that they may encourage the young women. Now when we look at that verb to encourage, that's how we've translated it, it really has the idea of to instruct in prudence to instruct in behavior that is becoming and shows good judgment. Or better, it, it, it could be translated as to bring to one's senses. In, in fact, one commentator says it really is, it serves as a kind of wake-up call that the elderly women who have the maturity and the, the age, the, the wisdom, they are to influence the younger women in such a way as to wake them up as to inculcate into them good judgment. In fact, that verb, which we have translated in the NASB as to encourage, comes from the same form, the same root as the word sensible that we have seen already in chapter 1, verse 8, when Paul says that elders must be sensible. And we saw it in chapter 2, verse 2, that that, uh, the older men must be Sensible. It has an, an, an emphasis on the mind, and, and it has the idea that older women are to influence the younger women, particularly by influencing their thought patterns, how they control their thinking as it relates to habits and lifestyle. And so as, as Paul envisions the developing Christian culture on the island of of Crete, he specifically sees that with respect to the young women, they will be most effectively impacted by the, the example of older women who live out their virtue, ultimately to the glory of God, but with a intentionality that that virtue will rub off. It will be inculcated in the younger generation. And that gives us pause for just a moment to go back and address the older women once again and to understand how the Apostle Paul instructs you as to your role within the church. And it's a very, very important one. 
One commentator puts it this way, Andreas Kirstenberger says this, and, and it's a, an accurate assessment. He says this, quote, There's a dire need in the church today for older women who are godly and obey the biblical directive to train young women in the faith. Many young women long for more mature women to take them under their wings and to teach them how to live the Christian life, especially since many lack godly role models within their own families. So I, I don't want to move on to this, move on from this too quickly and go back, like I said, for just a moment to address that previous category that we looked at several weeks ago when we dealt with the, the category of the elderly women, which, as I said, in Paul's day would have been generally age 50 and older. And Paul is, is, is exhorting these older women to make it part of their lifestyle, their intentionality, their, their way of living, that they see it as their duty before God for the good of the church to be involved in the lives of younger women to help them along the way, to inculcate virtue in them. Now, having said that, what kind of virtue are the older women to cultivate, to inculcate in the younger women, those who would be, generally speaking, less than 50 years old? And so to steal from a well-known title, Sense and Sensibility, uh, no, it's not my favorite movie, uh, but it, I know you ladies like it, so I'm going to use it. Um, <laughs> Paul, and it, and it connects well with that verb, you know, to, to instill. Um, what, what does this sense and sensibility look like uh, for younger women? What Paul is going to do now in verses 4 and 5 is give seven virtues that the older women in particular are to cultivate, to, to instill in, in this wake-up call, in this instilling of sound judgment, these seven things. We're going to go through them, get through as many as we can this morning. Uh, and these seven are, are these. Number one, the love of one's husband, verse 4. Number two, the love of one's children, verse 4 as well. Number three, prudence, verse 5. Verse 5 again, purity. And then prioritization of the home. Then moral excellency and then Finally, Paul's going to come back again to the topic of the husband and deal with the issue of submission to one's husband. Notice these are like bookends. As as Paul is thinking of Christian culture and particularly young women's role in it, that he recognizes that for the most part, young women are going to be married and and so much of their life is going to be connected with the husband. And so he uses this as really the bookends. This is what it's all about, life in, in married life and in relation to the husband and everything that flows out of that. So that's what we're going to look at. And notice this, if I can, just make a, a comment here on Titus 2. Look, If you look back at verse 4... The issue here is, Paul says, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, so on and so forth. These are not just tasks, individual responsibilities to check off, you know, once a day or something like that. What Paul is envisioning here is is not just a a to-do list. This is a habit. He is describing 
a kind of lifestyle that needs to be developed so that in various circumstances throughout every day, that there will be certain formed reactionary behaviors, easy choices that are made, so that in the moment, one does not need to think long and hard about what to do. It's, Paul is really talking about a walk. He is talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about habits that need to be developed that will lead to these easy moments of, of response, easy moments of action that just come naturally due to the cultivation of these things in life. Let's look at the first of these seven. Paul says, to love one's husband, to love their husbands, verse 4. Now, Paul uses an interesting compound word here. It's the only time when this word is used in the New Testament. He combines the word phileo, which means to love or to have affection for. Really, it emphasizes affection. And he combines that with the Greek word aner or andros to create a word that means love of husband or affection for husband. Although covenant faithfulness here, love in kind of the principal covenant sense is assumed, Paul's emphasis here is more on friendship and intimacy rather than just the commitment of love. Now, when Paul addresses husbands, for example, in Ephesians 5, he will, he will command them to love. And in that case, the husbands needed to be reminded of their covenant that they have made and that covenant-keeping love, commitment, and loyalty that was needed for the relationship to the wife. But here, it's important to note that love, here Paul isn't so much stressing that covenantness, that covenant faithfulness, that is assumed. He is addressing that personal relationship, that affection for, and Paul is saying the older women are to inculcate in the younger women, a lifestyle of showing affection to their husbands. Begins with that and says, this is what Christian culture looks like, that the young women will be affectionate for their husbands. Now, it's interesting to note that how this would have been accepted in in the ancient world, and one commentator says this, Greco-Roman marriage was an institution facing many challenges in the first century much as it is in the West today. Gospel reception can create strong, godly, and selfless relationships leading to vibrant marriages, and this is what Paul is trying to encourage. Paul is not simply trying to to keep the Cretan believers looking somewhat like the culture around them. He's calling them to a higher standard, a countercultural Christianity. And for the young women, it starts with this, a particular kind of relationship to the husband that will be different than the world. And that will be seen in authentic, personal affection for the husband. Number two, and flowing from that, Love of one's children. Paul says the older women must be involved in the younger women's lives so as to inculcate within them a love for their children. And again, Paul comes up here with another unique word, 
And it combines the term phileo, again, the, 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 the verb to have affection for, with the Greek word technon, which means child. And so putting those two words together, in, in one Greek word, the idea is affection for children or affectionate toward children. Younger women must be taught how to be affectionate to their children. Now, what's interesting here is that, that elsewhere in, in Paul's writings, Paul acknowledges that there is within mothers, there is this innate affection that is there when, when the mother is, is, is living her life as she ought to live. In fact, if you remember back from our study in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, as Paul describes his ministry, his ministry and Timothy's ministry and Silas's ministry in Thessalonica, he reminds the Thessalonians of, of the great sacrifices and integrity and instruction that Paul and the missionary team gave to the, the new Thessalonian converts. And when Paul wanted to emphasize affection, when he wanted to express just how deeply he loved those converts. He chose the illustration that everyone knew is most beautiful in terms of affection for, for children, and that is a mother's affection for children. But that doesn't always exist. And when you have a context like the, the Cretan context where Paul says they are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, a designation that certainly extended beyond the men, there is a kind of narcissism in that culture that, uh, that is an obstacle to such God-designed affection that mothers are to have. And so Paul emphasizes it here to, to Titus to pass on to the older women to say, listen, older women, you must, you must look at the younger women and realize that there are many challenges in, in the, the, the broader culture, many challenges that will obstruct or seek to suffocate the kind of affection that God has designed for, for mothers to show to their children. Now, this doesn't mean that husbands are off the hook for affection to their children or, or any responsibilities to the children. Paul will say that elsewhere, Ephesians 6 verse 4, Paul places instruction in particular in the hands of the father, but he emphasizes here that this tender loving care is really a, a primary responsibility of the mother. And older women are to have a special place in, in, in seeking to, to foster this in the lives of, of younger women. Now, Paul's context, as, as well as ours, as I've said, Paul's context, ours today, is dangerous environment for children. You need to, to recognize that, and we see that on so many different levels Today, and especially within our culture, as our culture turns increasingly dark, children are being sacrificed at all kinds of different levels, both literally and metaphorically. And so Paul's, Paul's insistence that younger women must be affectionate to their children is certainly counter-cultural. Like I said, the Cretans were known for their narcissism. And narcissism is the worst thing for children. A narcissistic mother 
And so Paul realizes that these young women are bringing in baggage from their Cretan culture that needs to be confronted. But also, even within broader Greco-Roman culture, we need to understand that as high as we may view the ethics that came from Greece, the ethical system of the day was not very favorable to children across the board. There was something back then, which we know of today, as eugenics. What is eugenics? Eugenics is the effort to improve the genetic quality of a population through all kinds of means, and particularly it is focused on children, and either killing the child in the womb to prevent its birth, or what is called infanticide, killing the child either passively or actively if the child is not deemed to to provide that kind of superior genetic quality that is deemed necessary for the family or for the, the state. So, for example, if you look at Plato's Republic in Book 5, he takes the position very strenuously that it should be considered noble for parents to kill the child in the womb or kill the child upon birth if it is done for the good of the state. Sounds somewhat familiar to what we hear today. Understand where the roots come from. Plato. Or you look at Aristotle, and Aristotle said this in his book, Politics. He refers to something called exposure. And so what would happen in those days is if you didn't kill the baby in the womb... Uh, if you want to take a more passive approach, when the baby would be born, then the baby would simply be left somewhere near a trash dump or in the wilderness. You just walk away. You kind of wash your hands of it, and it's done. Whatever happens to the child, that's in the hands of fate. And so Aristotle said this. He said, as to the exposure and rearing of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. And when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. He had a view that life doesn't start at conception, and so he, he, he thought he was being somewhat uh, sympathetic by, uh, by saying, you know, you have to abort at a certain stage before he believed that, that the baby was actually a person. He goes on to say, what may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation. There he's referring to whether the the baby has sensation or not when it is aborted uh, from the womb. In a work called Plutarch's Lives, there's a section in there. Plutarch's Lives is about the various biographies of great men of Greco-Roman history, and there's one called The Life of Lycurgus. And in that section... Uh, Plutarch relays this instance of, of how the, the community decided on, on these eugenic issues. And, and, and when parents would ha- give, bring a baby into the world, they would go to the elders of the community who would decide whether the baby was viable or not. And this is what he said. They, the elders, considered that if a child did not start in possession of health and strength, it was better both for itself and for the state that he should not live 
at all. Now, within the Cretan context, certainly, and within the broader Greco-Roman context of that day, children were not protected. In fact, they would look, as I said, on children in one of two ways. Either a son was needed in particular to be the recipient of a family's wealth, inheritance. That was the big idea. Daughters were not so desirable because they required dowries, and that could be expensive, and that would mean the liquidation of a family's wealth. But not only was it important for the family to limit their children, specifically looking for a son, but also population control was very important for the state. The state wanted the very best bloodlines. And if a child was born with some kind of deformity or health problem, then the state would deem that 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 baby would be a burden. And that was common understanding in the life of, of parents, of mothers, in the first century when Paul writes this letter. And we find many similarities with our day today, don't we? One writer says this, one commentator says this, in an age in which the slaughter of the unborn through abortion is internationally rampant, should not find it hard to imagine a situation in which mothers need to be called back to the protection and promotion of their children. And while infanticide may be a rare thing, abortion, as we all know, especially in the state of California, is is certainly very popular in the culture. It is what we could call one of the worst forms of toxic femininity that has such a low view of the value of children. And so in that day, with many similarities to our day, the Apostle Paul says to the older women, listen, there is a very important task that you have. You must inculcate within the younger generation a fondness, an affection for whatever children the Lord would bring into your lives. That is Christian culture. And that is what makes Christianity counter to the cultures of our day as well as Paul's day. Let's look at one more of these for this morning. A third virtue that Paul calls upon the older women to inculcate in the lives of younger women is expressed in the beginning of verse 5, where he says, to be sensible. To be sensible. Look at verse 5. Not only were they to love their husbands and to love their children, that has to do with relationships outside of themselves. Now, Paul looks at the young woman in particular and says, young women need to be sensible. Now, I've said already with this word, this is a very important term within the letter to Titus. It appears that this was a particular need among the the Cretan population, and and it makes sense in light of what we've seen in chapter 1, verse 11, about them being liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. There was no sensibility to them. They were like animals, as Paul says. And so throughout the letter, in many different ways, Paul brings in this word sensible, and says, this is, what, this is what the Christians need to demonstrate. He's already used this, as I said, back in chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, when you're looking for elder candidates, they must already be sensible. 
They must already have that sound way of thinking that manifests itself in self-control. They control their thoughts. He used it back in chapter 2, verse 2, when he said that the older men in the church must be sensible. And we talked about that last time, that it is such a dishonor to gray hair when older men do not control their thoughts. He uses it here in verse 5 to speak of younger women, and he's going to use it again in in verse 6 to speak of young men. They too must be taught to be sensible, to be prudent. He's going to use the same verb form from which we draw this adjective in verse 2, and he speaks of the older women teaching sound judgment to the younger women. And he's going to use this same root also in verse 14, where Paul says in verse 14 that, uh, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 11, uh, verse 12, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. So over and over again, Paul emphasizes this, de- uh, this idea of right thinking. And now he applies it to young women. He says this is, this is to be inculcated in the young women. They are to, to be characterized by a well-balanced state of mind that results from habitual self-restraint. That's the idea. Now, our time is up. We'll continue this next time. And for those of you who are wondering about, well, what about the other side? What about the other sex? The young men are coming. And, and we will deal with the young men as well in depth when we get there. But we're following Paul's own order here. And he moves through it. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. We'll get to the men. but We'll have one more study on younger women, especially because the second half is some of the more debated aspect of these, these, uh, these virtues that Paul requires. Uh, perhaps I'll just turn right to the very end and give you already some, uh, some applications to this. And these we'll leave with you for now and come back to them again when we pick up our study next time. So if you're a young woman, married or unmarried, let me challenge you already with these words. First of all, seek out older women who will encourage these specific virtues in them. You might be saying, I don't know who to, I don't know who to ask. What is the ideal discipler? Well, the question is, ask the person, will you help me instill these virtues in my own life? And if you find an older lady that will say, yes, I'm all about this, you found a good discipler. And may I even turn that around again and say to the older women, seek out the younger women to instill that in them as well. As well, number two, do not be naive about your culture, young women. We live in a broader culture that is not neutral, that seeks to form you into a certain kind of person that is actually counter to the ways of Christ. Do not be naive about that. That influence, the culture at large does not have your best interests in view. Number three, trust that what God says here, his commandments for life, his priorities that he gives to you here, 
that they are true and that they are good. That you will find, ultimately, you will find your greatest enjoyment in pursuing these things. And finally, as we go through all of these qualities, consider in concrete terms how each of these things, each of these virtues can be cultivated in your life. Seek to to understand how the Word of God will have authority in your life in very practical ways with respect to these very things. And as we do this, let me come back to what we started with. Remember the grace of God. It is central in all of this. You cannot do this on your own. It is the empowerment that God gives as his gracious gift to you, and that even in the failure in these things, it is God's grace to you that gives you hope for that ultimate moment when we will see Christ and be purified. Let's pray for the young women in our midst. Father, we are thankful for your instruction in your word and that you have not left us in the dark without without instructions uh, about what the Christian life looks like. We pray you'd protect us from the, the dangers of either ignoring these instructions, of dismissing their authority, of adding to them, or of seeking to obey them by our own strength. Instead, we pray, Father, that your grace would be abundant in the lives of the young women in our midst, and that the things that we have unpacked from these words would become ever truer in their lives. And we pray that for all of us as a body of of believers, that we would be active in a gracious and loving way and encouraging these things among our dear sisters. And we pray this all for your glory's sake. Amen.